Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. In 2006, Brandy and I, uh, we packed our bags to head out to Dallas Seminary, and a really weird thing occurred there. I should have known that something was off when this actually occurred in our life, but we went off to Dallas Seminary, and for some reason, even though I didn't have a job, she didn't have a job, we qualified for for a pretty decent home loan. Credit scores were pretty good, and, and again, I should have kind of known, I should have known at that moment that we were probably just years in front of what would become the 2008 global financial crisis that we had. Uh, we went to Dallas, in fact, uh, bought our first home, got a loan for our first home. If we would have kept that thing today, about $150,000 when we purchased it, it's worth over 300000 today. Um, so big mistake by me uh, for cashing that one in when we moved out of Dallas. But I read this book not too long ago, and they were talking about this crisis, and an interesting thing happened. Sadly, there was a string of, of very wealthy, well-connected, mostly businessmen who were business people, who were so turned upside down by the crisis that they lost the will to live. And in fact, there was an article that ran in the Wall Street Journal about a lot of higher executives that took their life when they were facing the realities of the, of the crisis, the 2008 financial global crisis. Uh, the CFO of, of Freddie Mac, or Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, there's a, a story in him about what happened. There was another really successful guy that was found behind the wheel of his new red Jaguar. Um, just turned out they just, they, they came into this very difficult circumstance and situation in life. They didn't know how to deal with it. And so that's what they did as a result of it. Uh, yesterday, if you guys weren't a part of this, uh, we had a men's breakfast. And uh, I want to encourage you guys to come to these breakfasts. There's a really good chance to get to know some of the guys in our church. They're pretty fantastic. Uh, Phil, Palmer, Phil Palmer shared his story a little bit about going through a difficult circumstance himself. Uh, Phil's been a member here for many, many years now. And his story is the exact opposite of what I just told you. Faced with difficulty, things that were out of his control, circumstances, situations in life, uh, he didn't lose the desire to live. In fact, he would tell you that he found a new element of life, a new aspect of life, and made him a better person. One of the last lines he left with us as, as men leaving the breakfast was he said, I'm a far better man on one leg than I ever was on two. How is it, how is it possible? Here's a question this morning. How is it possible that two people can go through pretty similar, at least life-altering circumstances in life? On the one hand, somebody comes out of that and they're a much better, stronger person. On the other hand, somebody comes out of that, and, the, and the life just completely falls apart. There's no hope, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, and there's no significance. There's one difference between them, and we don't talk about this enough at church and at churches when we talk about Scripture. Uh, the CFO at Freddie Mac, these other executives, their entire identity was built into circumstances, 
Whatever was happening at the moment, if their circumstances were good, they were good. If their circumstances were bad, they were bad, and their world was upside down. Have you ever heard about a concept in the New Testament? We talk a lot about it in Christian life called your identity in Christ. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about being in Christ. And one of the most dominant themes that we're going to see as we go through the book of Colossians is just what exactly does it mean that we are in Christ? A person who has a solid identity, a solid foundation in Christ, who knows they're forgiven, redeemed, sanctified, holy, chosen, beloved by God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son, that they've been given grace, that they've been loved by the Father through the Son, Somebody who has that kind of identity can overcome any circumstance, no matter what it is. In fact, when difficulties come about, they find themselves pressing through even stronger and better than they were without those circumstances in life. The Colossians is all about our identity in Christ. We're going to start a brand new series through the book of Colossians this morning, and nothing, nothing, I don't think, Linda, you back me up on this one, as a Christian, there's not much more that's important for your Christian walk than knowing who you are. There's not much that's more important that I can think of that we don't talk about enough in the church as your identity in Christ. And that's what I want to explore for the next six weeks or so. And, and today what I'm going to do is, is talk a little bit about the meaning of in Christ and, and expand on it just briefly, but we're just going to introduce the book and get into the first few verses and, and talk about the structure a little bit. So mostly preliminary matters today. We'll dive a little bit deeper as we continue to go. So I want to encourage you to keep on coming back here. Uh, for preliminary matters, the city of Colossae, past tense, was. city of Colossae is not really there anymore today. Past tense, it was located in the fertile Lycus Valley. A Greek historian Herodotus once described Colossae as a great city. Xenophon, another historian, gave a historical account where he said Colossae was wealthy and large. Uh, this city in the New Testament was probably the largest in the 4th and 5th centuries before Christ. Over time, by the time you get closer to the 1st century AD, Colossae decreased in significance and its city went through some, uh, some, just some times where it's not as important today. It's not really on the map anymore. There's the record of a major earthquake that went through this part of the world, Colossae, in about 60 AD. Most historians say that the city was never rebuilt after that. Today, if you go to Colossae, you'll find just the remnants, uh, the ruins. In fact, there's farmers that are plowing the fields around this. If they just dug a little bit deeper, they'd probably find ancient civilizations and cities beneath the ground there. Um, on the map, Colossae is, is situated bring this up, it's about 100 miles east of Ephesus, very important book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And you're getting a little bit closer to another important city in the New Testament, Laodicea. Most of the inhabitants in Colossae were, were Gentile. They were Greek settlers at the time. Uh, Josephus noted that about 2,000 Jewish families relocated to Colossae after the Babylonian captivity. So we're going to read some verses as we go through this book about the law. 
and about misinterpretations of the law. And that is certainly, certainly been affected by the Jewish families and the Judaism that took roots there well before the Apostle Paul's time and Epaphras when he first brought the gospel there. How did the gospel reach Colossae in the first place? Did you find Acts chapter 18? I've got these verses on the screen, I believe. If you didn't, I might have uh, put a bad reference down there. Let me just double check this. In Acts chapter 18, I believe. That's 19. 19 verse 23. I want you to read down. Turn to Acts 19 verse 23. Sorry about that reference there. I'm getting all kinds of confused. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. That's where we're going to be. Acts 19, verse 8. He entered the synagogue. This is speaking to the Apostle Paul. And for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. This is, again, talking about the Apostle Paul. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily from the hall of Tyrannus. Probably what your text says. In verse 10, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And I want to just draw your attention. There's probably, this is Paul's third missionary journey by the time we get to Acts chapter 19, uh, largely he's going back to the churches, back to the places he originally went to and just checking on those churches. Colossae is, a, is an interesting aspect. For most of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul uh, spent time in Ephesus with the Ephesian elders, leading up to Acts chapter 20, his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. But for a time, at least three years, he's in this area around Ephesus in the Hall of Tyrannus, and he's just preaching over and over again. He's preaching. In fact, some of you have a note in your Bible on your margins or in the Bible or in the bottom on your text. You might have a note there if you have a study Bible that says he would preach for about five hours each time daily in Ephesus. There's a, a way that some of my old pastors used to talk about preaching the word of God to me. And they used this phrase. They said, Jerry, that guy could really shuck the corn when he was preaching. You know, they called John Knox the famous thundering Scot with a voice of over a thousand trumpets. Spurgeon was the prince of preachers so that his listeners were spellbound when he gave a sermon. The Apostle Paul preached in Ephesus, really in, in one tiny location, and from that location at the end of verse 10, did you read that? So that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Listen, there's some hyperbole that's definitely going on here in verse 10, but for two years, Paul preached the gospel at least for two years. He reasoned with his listeners in such a way that all of Asia was impacted by it. In fact, one of his followers, Epaphras, was so impacted by it, he's the one who takes that gospel message, he goes to this area of Colossae, he's the one who plants the church there based on Paul's teaching in Ephesus. And the gospel continued to grow from there. 
The structure of the letter of, of Colossae is, is very uh, similar to a lot of the shorter books that you'll read of the Apostle Paul's. It has a two-part structure. A lot of times when you read these letters in the New Testament, the first part of the book is about information. It's about theology. It's about the truth of the gospel. The last part of the letter is about applying that truth. Okay, now how do we then live based on the truth that you told me? Ephesians is that way. Galatians is that way. Chapters 1 through 3, all about theological, propositional truth. You get to the end of those books. It talks about let's apply this now in the community of faith. Colossians is no exception. The beginning is mostly theology. It's mostly, mostly truth and doctrine. The ending is mostly application. What do we do with all that information that you gave us? At the beginning, Paul answers questions about what we believe. At the end, he answers questions about what difference does it make in our lives. All right, so Colossians follows a very similar pattern from the Apostle Paul. The theme verse is found in Colossians 2, verse 6. And not only is this the theme of the book, it also provides the structure for the rest of the letter. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By by faith, thank you, sir. So walk in him by, by faith. As you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. The first major sec section of Colossians deals with receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, and the truth of the gospel. The second major section from chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 6, talks about living, walking with him in a Christ-centered manner. And you've got a formal closing at the end of chapter 4 that we're accustomed to seeing from the Apostle Paul. The way that I'll be teaching through uh, Colossians is through a two-part preaching outline, just very simple. Identity truth followed by identity transformation. Identity truth, we're going to answer this question, who am I in Christ? All through chapter 1 into chapter 2. Then number two, identity transformed. How do I live from chapter two, six through the end of chapter four? Last preliminary note here. Almost all New Testament scholars believe that the church in Colossae, when Paul wrote to them, was very, very young in the faith. The Apostle Paul, we know for certain that he hadn't been to this church yet. He's writing to them at the same time that he writes Philemon, if you're um, familiar with that book in the New Testament, they go to the same city, the church that was uh, located there. And the gospel of Jesus Christ had reached Colossae for the very first time. The churches that came together in that city were coming together for the very first time. And you would think that the Apostle Paul might take some time to think about and to, to write about some more pertinent issues about ecclesiology and how we do this thing called church. He could have talked about baptisms. He could have talked about the Lord's Supper. He could have talked about preaching. He could have addressed reading scripture in the congregation. What does this look like when we come together as a church? He could have talked about church structure, elders, deacons, pastors. He could have talked about the culture. They were a Gentile, godless, pagan culture that he went into. And Paul didn't say anything about ministry methods, planned programs, or timely trends. Paul provides something much more pressing and much more primary for churches. What the Apostle Paul tells the churches is the most important thing that he could tell any church. It's the same thing that he would tell our church if he, if he was here today. At any time and in any place, he teaches the sufficiency 
in the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the difference that Jesus makes in a community of people, individually and corporately. Colossians is probably one of the most Christ-centered books in all of the New Testament with a Christ-centered theology for Christ-centered churches. And it's intended to help us as readers to keep the main thing the main thing. No matter what else is going on in the community, no matter what else is happening in the culture in any church, so many of us are accustomed and we want to start a three-step program or to do this or, or give this recipe for success and growth in a church. And the Apostle Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to think about Jesus. You need to live like Jesus. You need to worship Jesus. You need to consider the life of Jesus. You need to be centered on Jesus. You need to do everything to draw our attention to Christ as the focus instead of self and instead of anything else. C.S. Lewis is a great quote that really gets to the, to the heart of this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not, because, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When we become a Christ-centered church, focused on Christ, by Him we will begin to see everything else. Priorities will be put in order. Plans will be made accordingly. And all of our hearts will be drawn to the thing that matters the most in this thing called the Christian life. And that's Christ. It's living a life for Christ based on what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Let's talk about just a few verses as we get going. And then just a little bit, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, okay? Look down at Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read this formal opening, verses 1 and 2. As we start, all right. Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, excuse me, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. It's easy to miss, miss that. Uh, Timothy is uh, writing this letter of Colossae, Colossians with the apostle Paul. Uh, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a very typical opening for the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself as the writer, he identifies the recipients, and he gives his standard greeting, grace and peace to you. And I want you to, don't want you to overlook two things that we often overlook because this is so similar to almost every other book that the Apostle Paul writes at the beginning. Number one, twice Paul uses the word brother. Once, to refer to Timothy, Timothy, our brother. The second time in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. And again, it's, it's easy to overlook this truth. But the first thing that we're going to say about church, a young church, a startup church from Epaphras and the Apostle Paul is this, church is family. There's family relationships as we do this thing called life together in the church that belongs to Jesus. We all share the same heavenly Father. We all worship through the same Son, Jesus Christ. We are all united by the Holy Spirit, and we do these things in family, which means if we are a spiritual family, we should adopt the attitudes and actions necessary to maintain unity as a family. The church is not just a group of people it's not just an organization that's led by certain people. It's not just a, a, a group that comes together with common interests, common purpose, common mission. 
It's not just coming together on Sundays to sing songs and to to look at Scripture together. It's not just gathering on the holidays, as important as those are and often Christ-centered in themselves. It's deeper than that. The Apostle Paul envisioned a church that would function just like a family functions, that we would weep when other people weep, we would rejoice when others rejoice, that we would live in harmony with one another, that we would supply for the needs of the needy, that we would take care of one another, that we would fellowship with one another, that we would gather together outside of Sundays and do life together, that we would break bread together. Our bloodline is not a physical bloodline in the body of Christ, and it is the more important bloodline. It's a spiritual bloodline. It starts at Calvary with the shed blood of Jesus, and we're all a family because of what he has done for us. Church as a, as a family could be one of the, the deepest and most significant things that brings us together in unity as a body of Christ, and it is often, far too often, overlooked. Number two, I want, I want to show you, uh, I want you to see just this one small phrase that we pointed out at the beginning, verse two, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, a little tiny phrase with massive theological meaning. When Paul mentions Colossae in verse 2, he's referring to their physical location. When he says that we are in Christ in verse 2, he is referring to our spiritual location. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases to discuss our unity and who we are as Christians. In Christ, as a phrase, occurs about 33 times in all of Paul's letters. If you add in Christ Jesus our Lord, that occurs about 48 times in all of Paul's letters. To be in Christ means that we belong to the family of God through Jesus. In Christ is often contrasted with the opposite, in Adam. And that gives you the designation of all of humanity in two distinct categories. Everybody at any given moment in time is either A, in Christ, if they've united themselves with Christ through faith in him for salvation, or they are in Adam. Those two categories describe every single person that has ever existed and and does exist even today. All humanity falls into one category or the other. One commentator put it this way, in Christ indicates a total reorientation of our existence. It means we live for Christ. We breathe for Christ. The things we do with Christ motivations, we think about Christ in everything. We're going to see this phrase more and more, and, and we're going to explore it at a, at a much deeper level as we go on. But please make a special reference to that as you look at these beginning verses. Look down at, at verse 3. I'm going to read through the end of this paragraph here. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And I love that phrase, the word of truth, the gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit and increasing should immediately alert you to Genesis chapter 1. There's a, the creative hand of God that made the universe, the cosmos, and everything in it is still working through Christ in the church through a new redeemed humanity that is increasing and bearing fruit. 
the same way God's creation did at the very beginning, increasing bearing fruit, as it also does among you, verse 6, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God, and another mention there, verse 6, in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister to Christ on your behalf, and it's made known to you, and he has made known to us, excuse me, your love in the Spirit, the end of verse 8 there. First thing we notice is the great trilogy of virtue, faith, hope, and love at the beginning of these verses. Verse 4, our faith is in Christ, our love is for the saints, our hope is in the future. One man said this, faith is the soul looking upward, love looks outward towards others, hope looks forward to Jesus Christ. Faith is based on Christ's work in the past. Love is based on work in the present. Hope anticipates the future. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of those three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is, is love, love for one another and love for God. I want to touch on just two phrases in verses 5 and 6. This is all we're going to have time to uh, do before we close here. Look at verse 5. You see this in the middle. Because of the hope laid out for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel. It's an appositional phrase there, word of truth being synonymous with the gospel. Paul is relating those two phrases together. And at the end of verse 6, you heard it. He tells the Colossian believers there, they heard it and they understood the grace of God in truth. Now, we are postmodern in our culture, in our Western civilization thinking. That description, maybe more than anything else, describes the way that our culture has been conditioned to think. In institutions and in the the, uh, cultural brokers of society are telling us to think as a postmodern would think. As opposed to a postmodern world, the pre-modern world, religion was a source of truth and reality. When modernity came on the scene, 1750, through the Enlightenment, the modern world, science, rationality, the scientific method came about, reason dominated. And so we left religion and and truth through religion as a primary source of truth, and instead in the modern period, we went to science, rationality, and reason. The postmodern world is completely different than both those times. Truth and reality are individually shaped by history, class, gender, culture, and religion, to, ge- to name just a few. Postmoderns are suspicious of people who make universal claims to the truth. Postmoderns do not like Colossians verse 1, 5, and 6, as it talks about the gospel of truth. Such claims of universal meaning are viewed as imperialistic efforts to marginalize and oppress the rights of others. Postmodern Postmodern modernity refuses to allow any single defining source of truth in reality other than you and yourself, your feelings, and what you think. The new emphasis now is on difference, plurality, and selective forms of tolerance. Postmoderns believe that their way of thinking is far better and more stable for culture, for life, for society, and for civilization. In actuality, modernity was was much more confident in the claims of science and man's ability to think. Post-modernity is marked much more by anxiety 
offers more questions than it offers any answers. One writer put it this way, don't understand, God is warmly welcomed in a postmodern world as long as he doesn't try to play God. Let me read that again. Don't misunderstand, God is warmly welcomed in the postmodern world as long as he doesn't try to play God. As one has written, postmodernity returns value to faith and affirms the nurturing of our spiritual being as vital to humankind. Unfortunately, it does so with the loss of truth. And people will now seek faith without boundaries, they will seek faith without categories, and they seek faith without definitions. So truth is under attack. Words are under attack. And there's really never, ever been a better time for Christians to stand out as salt and light in the world than is offered to us today. As Christians, we claim to have a universal truth. We claim to have the truth that matters. We claim to have a gospel that Paul defines and clarifies as the truth, as the grace of God in truth. And if you want to uh, impact Tulsa, make a difference in your relationships, your environment, your, uh, the place that you work, your family, just talk a little bit about truth and ask questions of truth. And I promise you, you will stand out. Just a, just a couple quick points as we close in this. Um, number one, all truth is God's truth. It's really important for all of us to understand that all truth is God's truth. Sometimes the sources from that truth come from godless places. But God, by his general revelation, has given us the image of God in both fallen and redeemed man. And so those who are made in his image can actually discover truth because God has ingrained it in them. In our postmodern world, everything is relative Relativism is dominating our culture. Their main philosophical idea is that there is no truth. Being radically skeptical, that's sweaking the academic structures and institutions of our day. Postmoderns tell you that you can't know anything for sure. Nothing is set in concrete. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is relative. Objective, absolute truth doesn't exist. You're not going to find it in this world. First of all, let me just say, if somebody tells you there is no absolute truth, here's the first thing you say. Is that an absolute truth I'm supposed to believe? It's kind of a walking contradiction in many ways. It's like if someone said to you in English, I can't speak a word of English. Okay. Greg Kokel has an article that explains at least 15 things that must be true to even utter the sentence there is no truth. First of all, that's a propositional statement. Propositional statement that claims to be in the form of a truth. Is that, a, again, a form of truth that you want me to hear or not to hear? You've got the concept of a sentence strung together with multiple words to form a singular idea. Is that idea something that's trying to communicate truth? You have the truth of multiple words, each distinct with one, from one another, each with separate meanings from one another. You have a law of non-contradiction. If there is no truth, then the opposite must, must be false. And so where does that lead you in your quest for truth or relativism or wherever it's going? Regardless, all truth is God's truth. If it's true for you, it must be true for me because it has to be true for God if it's true. In other words, truth must align with the standard of a reality 
And if truth doesn't appeal to reality, it doesn't really matter how it makes you feel. It doesn't matter what you want to believe because our feelings and our desires are not the standard for truth. It doesn't go through the lens of us. Truth is determined outside of us. Again, postmoderns are okay with the idea of God as long as God doesn't function as God. All of them want to function as God. All the postmoderns want reality and truth to come through their perspective instead of an objective, absolute perspective. But all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Number two, truth is ultimately found in a person. I want you to turn from Colossians here. This is where we're going to end. Turn to John chapter 18. I'm going to read a a passage that's probably very familiar to most of you. All truth is God's truth. Number two, truth is ultimately found in a person. Look at John 18, verse 33. It's at the end of, uh, towards the end of Jesus' earthly life here. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Definite article. The singular, absolute truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is the truth? We don't have a recorded answer from Jesus after that question. We don't know if, if Jesus responded to it. Maybe he just looked at Pilate. Maybe he looked around at the other people around him. Maybe he nodded. We, we just, we really don't know. But I like to believe that John left that question dangling for a reason. I think it's there for us, even as readers, to contemplate and to think about. Just like the book of Colossians, John's gospel is centered on Jesus. It's about Christ, seven miracles that he performed leading up to his final, most compelling miracle, the miracle of the resurrection. And he answered that question earlier in the gospel. Just take a a few chapters back in John 14, verse 6. Thomas said to Jesus, we don't know where you are going. How can we find the way? Remember what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything about our world, everything about our culture wants you to question the existence of truth. Everything about it is funneling you away from Jesus, away from Christianity, and towards self. 
toward the building of our own kingdom and away from the kingdom of God. And if you get caught up in the warp and the woof of that culture, you too will begin to sound like a postmodern. You'll begin to question everything. Everything will become relative. Everything is subjective. There is no objective, absolute, defining truth. But if what Scripture says is true, if what the Apostle Paul says is true in Colossians, that the gospel is true, if what Jesus said is true, that he himself is the truth, it means this. All the ideas about wisdom being personified and the divine logos that the early philosophers thought about and that John 1 begins to tap into in the culture— And everything that we ultimately desire in the deep down recesses of our souls in the bottom of our heart for objective reality, all of it is caught up in one element, one aspect of truth. And that truth is not a proposition, it's not a philosophy, it's not a statement, it's not a religion. That truth is a person, truth is personified, truth took on flesh. Truth is Jesus. When we come to Jesus in a personal relationship, guess what we come into? We come into the truth. The absolute, undeniable, perfect truth of God. That he himself is real. That he created the world from eternity past. He set all of these things into motion. He continues to sustain the world by the word of his power. By his grace by his love for mankind, whom he originally created and whom he redeemed through Jesus Christ. Any truth seeker will ultimately find and and come to the reality that if there is no truth, then nothing else matters. But if there is, then it changes everything. Colossians is the book that will point you to the truth of Jesus more than anything, anything else. And it will tell you If you look for your identity in anything that's not him, it will ultimately destroy you. But when you put all the weight of glory, of significance and identity and meaning in life in Jesus, it's there that you will be perfectly satisfied. Once you come to the truth of Jesus, everything else is changed by it. All of life. No longer do you look for meaning and significance in your retirement accounts and your careers and your possessions and your success and your achievements, all of a sudden, all of your meaning, all of your significance, even when you lose a leg, is found in Jesus because that's all that ultimately matters, and that's what everything is coming to at the end of all things. Everything leads to the person and the work and the truth of a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask the, uh, the guys to come up as we take the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for this time again that we have to, to go through this awesome short little book of Colossians. I pray that uh, the truth of it will penetrate our hearts. I pray that it will lead us deeper not only to more information, but to the application of the truth of Jesus in our lives and the difference that he makes. I pray that our identity will be rooted and and grounded solely in who you are and what you have done for us, that when everything else in life changes, we won't be caught up by that, but we will know the constant. We will have the perfect relationship with Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray that everything that we say and do 
would glorify and center on him. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.